Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Mark Robinson. How are you, Mark? Very well, thank you, John. Excellent. And we're going to talk about your cover feature in a minute. Uh, a little later on, yes. Yes, we are. And uh, over in the control room, quarantined in the control room because of her Theresa May-like cough, uh, Harriet Russell. How are you, Harriet? Yeah, hanging in there. Good, good. Well, uh, every, everywhere we seem to be going down like flies at the ice. Yes, the yes. I mean, there's a combination of uh, dysentery and uh, <laughs> whooping cough upstairs. It's not a pleasant place to be. No, no. Unfortunately, I, I, I just don't get ill, so I'm stuck here. Oh, no. And uh, obviously, later in the podcast, we're going to be giving uh, Simon Thompson a call to chat through his latest small cap updates. Let's start with the news section, which is Domino's Pizza is the thing you've written for us this week. This is a, a, a kind of bit of a, a divisive stock. But you're a bit negative. Yeah, well, I th- Domino's is one that we we happen to routinely call wrong, so I put that caveat on it. Indeed, and uh, we had a, a reader kindly point that out to us on the website uh, story. That you wrote. <laughs> yeah, not surprised. Um, I, it's difficult. You're always obviously trying to establish the circumstances, and you only have the current context really to work in. And I think based on those two factors, um, people should be. Uh, wary of this week's Q3, which caused a 14% leap in the share price. Because they, they were good numbers. They were good On num- the face of it. On the face of it, yeah. they were. What, what really set that movement off was a return to uh, significant like-for-like growth in the UK. That has been slowing for some time. Um, and there's been a lot of questions over, you know, mature markets and and how dominoes really presses forward on on home soil um sort of again on the face of it it's not been a massive problem because internationally they're growing so fast um that a lot of those top line figures at least are offset by by what's coming from abroad um however the the stunning performance in q3 means that the whole group now doesn't have to register any like-for-like improvement in the fourth quarter to hit its current profit targets but that sounds good so why are we still concerned well, it's because you want to sort of dig behind that. I think there's always um, a lesson to be learned from <laughs> declaring a recovery from one quarter's trading alone. Um, we all know that things can reverse. And it really is about also digging into the quality of those earnings. Um, so abroad, for, for example, the top line might be accelerating, but actually margins are coming under pretty big pressure for the franchisees. Where, where does it have uh, overseas franchise? Because there are, I mean, Domino's is a, a global group and, yeah. and, and obviously uh, there are different companies that have different uh, territorial franchises. What, what, is, what is Domino's Pizza UK and Ireland, as it used to be called? What, is it still called that? Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's one section of it, yeah. What, what, what else does it have? I mean, mainly in Europe, but also places like Iceland. Um, Germany was its, its a market that people were really concentrating on for a long time because they were worried about what was um, what it was costing them to expand there. And they are still in Germany? They are. And um, it's going all right, is it there? It's going better than it was. Um, but other regions, I mean, this is what uh, quarterly updates are always sort of difficult because they they rarely really describe anything below the top line. So you're really only ever looking at a revenue performance. Mm. A lot of retailers don't even report a margin p- performance at all. So a trick that the restaurant sector used to pull off with quite a plomb uh, was to, to basically use promotions to, to really drive top-line activity. Are we seeing that at Domino's? We absolutely are. That's the problem. Um, it, it's a problem and it's a good thing. I mean, the promotions that they ran, the food of everything, um, I mean, the numbers coming out of that are astonishing. Uh, in the last weekend of September, they were processing 140 orders per minute. Uh, that's promotion-driven, though. But it's it? promotion-driven, I mean, exactly. I t- I've got to say, if someone stuck a leaflet through, if Domino's stuck a leaflet through my door, 
sort of saying you can have a pizza for a fiver. Like, I'm all over that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel terrible for about three days. <laughs> well, yes, <the> regret. <laughs> Domino's regret. Um, but yeah, it's it's that's the thing is you've got to look at the quality of those earnings. So although it might drive a massive bump in the top line, what is that doing to the margin? And the analysts at Liberum, their big problem with it is that they don't think that profitability is going to have grown at the same rate over the same time period. Now, one thing I would say about Liberum, who are, I think they're good analysts, but they are, they do tend to be the kind of uh, contrarian yeah. analysts. They're on the bearish side of things when everyone else is bullish. And I, I like that. Yeah. You know, they're throwing out an idea. But that is why the readers criticise this, that, that, that Liberum, in fact, is an outlier yeah. in their view. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, that's not always true. A good example of that is Jimmy Choo. They were very, very bullish on Jimmy Choo when I was very, very bearish. And although the sort of underlying performance on that company, I think, frankly, I was right, um, the share price performance doesn't show that at all. The shares have absolutely flown and now they've been taken over at a pretty generous premium. Mm. Um, so, you know, Liberum got it right there. Why can't they be right on this? Indeed, they, I, I would agree with that. As I say, it's just an idea. Mm. You know, and I think this, this is what makes a market. You know, yeah. A range of ideas and people coming to, to a conclusion as to, as to what they actually It's also that... worth pointing out that of the analysts I looked at, um, I think it was Peel Hunt had them on a buy, M plus one singer had them on a hold and Liberum has them on a sell. So to say opinion is split is actually the fairest evaluation. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the story with Domino's UK, I mean... Overseas growth, I mean, presumably it's not really, you know, moving the dial a great deal in respect of this business overall. Um, I guess this, the worry with Domino's, as you, you, you alluded to earlier, is maturity. Yeah. Like, how many more Domino's can the country absorb? Well, exactly. They've already started doing store splits, um, which has caused a huge financial headache for anyone looking at those accounts because they now produce numbers including splits and excluding splits, and no one knows really what a split is. What is, this, what is a split? A split is basically a store that has split itself into two stores in the same region because they now want to be able to service more customers from two effectively two sets of ovens so that they can make the stuff faster and get it delivered quicker um and so from domino's perspective they say that's great because it means that we've got a substantial amount of orders that we can't actually service so we're gonna have to split the store in two but you know a lot of it is done through franchisees so you know you're sharing kind of the the revenues from that and i suppose there's always the danger that that eventually works its way out someone like restaurant group is is telling of that when you have too many sites they they can start working against each other yeah and domino's got some you know we Big, reasonably uh, substantial expansion plans this this year. Yeah, I mean, the the store openings, that's another reason why Peel Hunt really said, you know, this is really encouraging because they're gonna, they've opened record amounts of stores and they've opened their 1,000th site in the UK and uh, and they've got something like 19 slated for the near term. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's going great guns. But the question is always about how, at what cost is that growth going to come? And two, when is it going to stop? Yeah, I mean, my, my, for what it's worth, my kids, who, who I always tell you they're a bellwether of UK retail, a uh, leading indicator, JD Sports, they're all over it, trainers. Uh, Ted Baker, they love. Uh, and Domino's Pizza, I, I didn't realise how much they like pizza because they won't eat it when I put something in the oven at home. <laughs> but uh, Domino's Pizza, that, I, I, honestly, I've never seen a pizza disappear so quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's a good product, but I, from a shareholder's perspective, there are other stocks I prefer. It's not that it's an aggressive sell. We've actually not put it through tips of the week, so it's only on a mini sell. A mini sell? Yeah. God, I have heard that expression for a while. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned Ted Baker. Let's talk about Ted Baker because they've had some results this week. They're good. They are good, yeah. Um, Ted Baker is a tip of the year, so it's one that we've been watching pretty quickly. Is it a tip of the year? Is it yeah. a tip of the year? Yeah, it's an old reliable. <sighs> 
Um, no, I'm sharing my because I, I tip. I, that was just one of my tips of the year. Many it, years ago. Was it? Oh god, yeah, four pound fifty. I think the shares were. Oh uh, well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> not quite that anymore, but um, but yeah, it's uh, Ted Baker always loses. We've Algy and I were talking about this this week. It always loses a bit of momentum in the middle of the year, um, and it's just the way that their kind of financial model works. It always they always have a bit of trouble <laughs> in the middle of the year, and then it comes out well in the end. And uh, and these numbers really showed that. So tell me about the numbers. What 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 did you like about them? Um, to me, I think they're doing um, the thing that Ted Baker does really well consistently is that they know exactly who their customer is. This is a throwback actually to the sector focus that I wrote in last week's issue, um, which was dedicated to apparel retailers. And to me, Ted, no, they don't sort of faff around with trends too much, trying to understand what their customer wants day to day. They stick with one thing. They know their affluent city types and they're looking for kind of upmarket clothes more often than not. Um, and so the revenue performance is always strong. It's always just about with them. It's kind of a classic story about just how quite well they manage the cost and make sure that the margins are stable, and then it should all flow through to the bottom line. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so the shares come off a bit actually over, the, over as you say, over the course of the summer. Uh, time to buy back in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's probably not that far off what we originally said. Um, hey, actually, I'm just looking at the uh, the write up here. The, I mean. 22 times full forecast earnings. That's not that pricey for Ted Baker. It used it, to be. It's pretty much in line with their history, actually, on a five-year basis. And uh, and like I say, it's no more expensive than at the beginning of the year when we told people that that premium was acceptable based on their sort of long-term track record for growth. So if you missed out in January, now's, now's a good time because the shares have found some real re- renewed momentum. Uh, international growth is something you mentioned here. We talked about Domino's and their, their, their kind of somewhat slow-paced uh, international expansion. Ted Baker is hitting the right notes overseas. What I what I was really surprised about in those uh, numbers actually to do with international growth, and I asked them about this, was uh, was the US is actually doing really well again, particularly on the wholesale side, which I find fascinating because the demise of the US department store is something I've been reading a lot about. And so I was asking them about the health of those wholesale accounts, and they they sign new accounts this year, and Nordstrom is their biggest partner out there, and uh, and they're ordering more and more, and their footprint is growing out there. So the brand is obviously really resonating, which. as we know in retail, brand is, is so important. Indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, let's go back to the new section. Let's talk about, uh, we've talked about Domino's. Uh, obviously, you, you, your pizza comes in a box. Uh, and someone has to manufacture this box. Indeed. But, but the, bo- the world of boxes is not the, proving The bottom's quite. fallen out of the, the box. The bottom's fallen out of the box, Mark. Of course, uh, John's alluding to uh, Mondi here, who issued a, a profit warning uh, earlier on in the week. Um, and it was linked to uh, rising raw material costs and also some maintenance uh, issues. So the bottom hasn't entirely fallen out of the box market, it's just it's getting more expensive. Not at all, but uh, but I think what's interesting for our uh, readers uh, is uh, a corresponding profit warning that just came out this morning to do with uh, Reynold, the small cap uh, engineer. Now they've... um, They have chains, they have a chain maker. They make chains amongst other things, they do. Um, uh, But they had had an outage at one of their production facilities in Germany. Uh, and so, um, actually, they couldn't deliver to a number of key customers, and that's eaten to the margin. The, the, the shares were down by nearly 10% uh, this morning, much the same drop for Monday yesterday. But the interesting part about this, I think, is that it, it shows that actually um, raw material price increases are starting to move into the system now. Is, is this a, a Brexit thing, or is this uh, a broader? Uh, no, it's a, it's, a much bro- it's a much broader issue uh, than this as well, uh, given... Um, I mean, I mean, for our readers, I mean, as I pointed out in um, in the Monday article there, uh, 
it's the ability of these companies to pass through these price increases, which will be critical for um, an investment decision. Yeah, you can't imagine that, that uh, the ability to pass through the extra cost of boxes is going to go down well with someone like Domino's, for example. Well, exactly. and, and you who, who themselves are operating on fairly... Yes, fine margins, exactly. That's the thing. Most of the people that they do supply to are just that, operating on very fine margins. So um, uh, I think they've got a fairly decent track record in the past, Mondi, and they've got long-term arrangements with their... Uh, uh, with their end customers as well, but we're, so but, we're not saying sell. Then I mean, this is this is uh, this is a, you could almost argue it's a blip that that these no, raw we, material increases have, have have come through. They've taken a hit. It's it it's pretty much that. I mean, the the, the, the 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 difficulty is people look at Reynolds' announcement this morning as well because you've had this outage in Germany and you can't you can't sort of mitigate against it's kind of random isn't it? exactly. But I, I I have a feeling I've I've got a couple of notes upstairs and I've yet to go through them in any real detail, but. I suspect the analysts are really just looking at those uh, raw material price increases rather than uh, what uh, what transpired in one of their production units. But we'll find out. I mean, it's 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 a point worth considering for uh, investors going forward. I mean, let's, I mean, let's just you know while we're talking about raw material price increases, yeah, you know, Reynolds. I presume their main uh, cost is steel. Then. Uh, yes, yes, it would be, well, and, and, and energy, and energy, and of energy. course, yeah. So you know, let's, let's and they've we, got they've got fairly hefty um, transportation costs as it happens. Well, indeed, yeah. yeah. I mean, so let's let's look at uh, the stats page, which is on the opposite page to this. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of those raw material prices, commodity prices, they're they're, they're looking pretty pretty pumped up at the moment. Yes, yes, and I th- I think as as well, it's uh, I was talking to um, Alex Newman about the the oil price um, uh, earlier on today as well. And it looks as if it's getting some uh, tacit support from both Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia now, who I think have taken the uh, the view that they want to push that price up to uh, $60 plus a barrel. Well, there's actually, uh, on the uh, Seven Days page, there's an interesting stat about uh, Saudi oil uh, output. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they are basically uh, well below demand. Yeah, which would support the price. Well, exactly, exactly, and the same is true of Russia as well. Um, there's a, there's a very interesting piece in the magazine this week. I think we just highlighted briefly that Alex has written about uh, the demise of the petrodollar. Or that's probably putting it a bit too uh, strongly. It's but... a bit too strong, but it's a good. It's a very good piece. It's... it kind of it's kind of indicative of the way the world is reshaping, tilting. You could argue towards well, the east. Well, exactly, and it's a political article as well because uh, what the likes of uh, China. Uh, Iran and um, uh, Russia are doing are effectively bypassing uh, U.S. foreign policy now. Because let's face it, I mean, what what, what implications does uh, the petrodollar have? It means that the United States can run up an enormous deficit and uh, and finance it relatively cheaply as well. If that goes, it has major consequences for the world economy as well. And you could say that part of Donald Trump's um, apparent hostility to the uh, the Iranian deal that was brokered by Barack Obama is is linked to this uh, uh, to uh, the petrodollar yeah it's a fascinating article i mean it's it's, it's kind of somewhat mind-boggling in terms of the complexity of, of what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the buying of oil and the pricing of oil and and the way it's paid for it's it it is it is definitely something worth keeping an eye on yeah and I, th- I think in the next issue of the magazine as well alex is uh, going to be looking at uh, recent statements by the uh, iea and also opec as well looking at uh, production levels there so it's about time that we uh, revisit it because it obviously has implications right across the board. In, indeed, it does. Um, I mean, let's let's stick with uh, with China um, and let's stick with petrol. Yes, because that is obviously something that is very important 
uh, in respect of the cover feature that you have written, and that is that is the rise of electric cars. Yeah, I think I alluded to, to this in a podcast recently. Um, it, it's taken us quite a while to actually decide on when we should run this, and the simple reason is... Is there was a there, hole in the schedule. There was a hole in the ship. Yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, it's, it's just that, as our readers would have noticed, I mean, there's been uh, an avalanche of announcements right throughout this year. There and really has, actually. And, you know, I think, you know, one thing that I think is particularly useful, it's a great feature, but one thing I think is really useful is this, uh, this chronology that you've put together. I mean, you just get a feel for how much has actually happened this year. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a difficult one for investors at the moment as well. Uh, because I try and make the point that uh, even, even though we're seeing a, um, a, a strengthening rollout throughout the industry, both in terms of the automobiles themselves, but also the uh, uh, the charging networks. And but the there's ba- press release today that you... you uh... Well, exactly, yes. I mean, just as uh, before we were going to move down to the studio, it appears that Shell have uh, bought uh, a company... Uh, called New Motion, which apparently operates more than 30,000 private electric uh, charge points uh, for homes and businesses uh, across Europe, including the UK as well. So, I mean... Uh, that... So, presumably, it's, going to, it's bought that so it can roll out the technology uh, more substantially. Well, yeah, and uh, it goes back to an announcement in August as well where um, uh, BP said they were going to uh, install EV charge points on uh, their four courts. You don't be sitting at petrol station for two hours. They <laughs> charge your battery. I mean... Well, yeah, yeah. all this is bound up in, in, the, in the, the, the improvement in the, techno- the underlying technology. That's right. I mean, there, there, there have been improvements, but, it, you know, it's, and we're just waiting for a major breakthrough, I'd say, in, in battery technology at the moment. This is, this, is the real, this is the real determinant of how quickly we, we're going to see a, a rollout. We haven't really gone into that in this, because that's no. quite speculative, the discussion. Around. But, but, I mean, you know... It is, uh, we, we covered it at the, at the beginning of the year as well, so, I mean, we'll come back to it. We, we have, but, I mean, you know, it's not in this feature, really. No. But uh, this is more about the market generally and who's doing what in terms of the automotive sector. Um, but in, in terms of batteries, I mean, we might as well have this conversation here. There, there do look to be some breakthroughs on the horizon. Yeah, and I think most of it comes down to the fact it's trying to reduce that that, uh, that charge point and time the size as well, too. the size as well. Um, but but actually, all of the components that are going into um, uh, EV and uh, hybrid vehicles at the moment uh, are being reduced in weight. You know, and that's obviously uh, that's obviously a, a major um, uh, well, that's obviously a major sort of driver for companies like uh, GKN and, and Car- Carclo that we mentioned. I mean, I've I, I got to say, I mean, from a personal perspective, I have been, I've been holding out for my electric car. Uh, and, you know, my, my old car was 10 years old before uh, I got someone to come and remove it. Um, but the electric cars didn't come as quickly as I'd have thought. But now it looks like it's happening. Maybe I can get rid of my 10-year-old Kia, now which my well, brother could, gave me. Uh, if, you, if you're hanging on to a, a conventional vehicle, I mean, this is, not gonna, this is obviously not, not pertinent at the moment. But over time, you'll see when the proportion of EV and hybrid vehicles uh, increases, then some people might be actually holding uh, used cars that are, are dropping in value rather rapidly. I mean, let's talk about used cars, Harriet, because you've covered Virtu Motors this week. And this is an interesting story too, because the there is definitely something of a hiatus in the automotive retail sector in the UK. This has been a good sector. It's had a good few years, but you're worried about it. I am worried about it. It's a real stock picker's market. You have to really start to look at 
the numbers at each of the companies quite harshly. And there are some, to be honest, it's really just about where they are in the growth cycle. So you just have younger companies in there who are making more acquisitions. So we're talking like uh, Marshall Motors. Marshall Motors. Um, I mean, I've got Cambria on a hold, but they're not bad. You know, it's sort of the smaller end of the spectrum. But it's it's a very fragmented market. So there there is always that room for a bit of consolidation of financial engineering. There is. It's just about sort of, I suppose, the, co- the company's own confidence that they feel. And that was something that Vertu really tried to sort of ram down my throat yesterday was that their balance sheet is in good enough nick that they can continue to do acquisitions. But the, the profits look good. Yeah. And I would just like to point out they haven't done an acquisition in 15 months, which is actually quite a long time for motor retail. For um, Vertu, that's a very long time because they were, they were a consolidator. That's yeah, why they came to market. Exactly. So um, it, it, it's really about sort of... Um, trying to understand what how they feel. And Robert Forrester was really doing his best yesterday to, to assure me that everything was fine, but um, it didn't it didn't keep me from uh, moving them off the sell tip that we've got. No, Rob, Robert Forrester being the chief executive yeah. of uh, Virtu. I mean, I guess I guess the, the, the problem is is that no matter how well run they are, no matter how healthy their balance sheets are, the market, the market uh, for whatever that is, uh, will be looking at the, the broader automotive market and saying, E, this yeah. is not looking great. And the data that I pulled him up on from the SMMT that we had literally last week was absolutely awful for new cars. Um, and he admits that new car sales are in a really bad place. But he, from his perspective, it's entirely a function of currency. And that, is he, yeah, well, do you not do you not think? I mean, going back to to Robbo's cover feature, do you not think uh, that a lot of uh, potential car buyers, like myself, for example, uh, are just waiting for for something new to come along i.e. electric vehicles before i go and pump you know 20 grand into a new diesel car which might be obsolete and and actually illegal in in five years time yeah exactly and Speaking of the scrappage scheme, actually, um, this was something I talked to him about as well. And he was very um, insistent on making the point that this is not the same as the scrappage scheme that we saw in 2008. No, which it's, was, it's, it's, it's manufacturer funded. It's manufacturer funded. It's very individual, Toyota, Volkswagen, um, whereas the one we had in 2008 was government backed and it was uniform. That's and, what I'm waiting for, you see. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it was really a, a, a significant stimulus for the industry. And he's sceptical that these guys will have the same. However, he does say that, you know, initial kind of um, patterns coming out of that are positive um, but it, it won't have the same sort of uniform magnanimous effect that, that the 2008 scheme had so yeah. it can't be relied on as, as a massive kind of rescue attempt to so the industry. D- so do you think I mean automotive yeah, new car sales the data's not been great you know is this a blip or a trend? Oh gosh I mean million dollar question I'm going to say it's it's a trend, but it's me- it's probably medium term in that I think what's really changed in the industry is obviously the advent of PCPs. They keep the industry afloat to some extent. But the but the regulators, the financial regulators are very worried about those. Exactly. And presumably that's had some impact on the provision of PCPs, That just that, that sort of raised concern from the FCA. Yeah, they, they claim not so far in the UK. They obviously haven't had any regular, actual regulatory change yet to make them start looking at third-party providers. But of course... They might be telling me one thing and burrowing away behind the scenes, looking at exactly how um, how well backed those products are. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a risk for sure. And if the currency stays where it is, which there's an argument to say it will, the pound, you know, there's a school of thought that said the pound needed to undergo a correction of some degree and that post-Brexit just kind of prompted it, um, then, you know, the manufacturers are going to keep their supply of new cars into the UK somewhat kind of on the back burner, I think, for the time yeah. being. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, everyone wants to buy a Nissan. 
A Nissan. Mm. Well, I've got a Nissan. Well, my wife's got a Nissan. Let's talk about Nissan. Leaf. Leaf, yes. I mean, you know, it's a big car. Well, exactly. It's a small car. Well, the the new new model's um, just been released as well. I I can't think of the figure off the top of my head. I I think it comes on the road about... Twenty-five, twenty-six thousand pounds, which is quite a lot for a small car. Well, it is when you you consider you could get a Ford Focus or or a Volkswagen Golf for about twenty grand. You buy a second-hand car for virtually. In fact, my car cost me a few bits of old furniture, which I swapped with my brother for his his old car, which he bought with a PCP. On that subject, used cars. How's that looking? Because obviously, used car, new cars. They're kind of interdependent. Yeah, well, my big risk and what had really sort of prompted my sell point was an update from Virtue not too long ago over the summer, which um, which really hinted at weakness in used car margins. And lo and behold, these numbers really showed that. So I think um, that's a big worry because used cars, used cars have been very profitable for the for the motor retailers. Yeah, they have been. And uh, and if margins start to slip there, as they have, then uh, then that's a real issue. However, again, Robert Foster was doing his absolute best to assure me that that's not going to be a long-term problem. Mm. It's an interesting but it's, argument. But it's entirely dependent upon the size of the new car market. Well, exactly. So he says, obviously, at the moment, with the new car market shrinking um, and customers not trading in vehicles against a new purchase, it means that the supply into the used car market hasn't been as bloated as what people expected. That's true. And therefore, residual value should hold up in the short term. Of course, if the you know, new car market starts to come back a bit, then perhaps that won't be true anymore. There'll be this glut of new of used vehicles entering the market. All these people who have been waiting, and uh, and residual values will will suffer. The, the, the structure of PCPs as well should support the used car market, and it should also support the rollout of uh, electric vehicles. But you, you would hope so. I mean, you know, my worry would be. I mean, you know, thinking you know speculatively, you know, if if EVs have reached the tipping point. They're reaching the point where they become, uh, you know, price competitive on, on, a, on a sort of unsubsidised basis versus uh, internal combustion uh, engine-based cars. You know, who's going to? Are we not just going to be left with an, an absolute huge pool of used cars that nobody wants? Well, this is where we're going to have to have a degree of government support. Although I tend to think that um, the United Kingdom's approach is a little bit more realistic than, say, France's. Well, t- well tell, tell us about that because that is a key point you make. You, you, well, the, the relative approach, the, res- the the different approaches that different governments are taking towards the support of the electric. Well, exactly. The, the, the French one is, is far more radical insofar as that they're they're seeking to get um, a, a complete rollout of electric vehicles as opposed to hybrids. Whereas, which is which is strange because their entire industry is built around the, the diesel engine. But well, exactly. That's, that's uh, a big shift for them. They, they've actually got just over 1% um, of all the vehicles registered last year were electric vehicles in what's, France. What's the figure in the UK? It's slightly less than that. Is it now? I think it's slightly less than that of the registered. I might, I might have that wrong, actually. But I think one thing the French do have, that's a, an abundant supply of cheap electricity. Well, this is true because of uh, their nuclear program. absolutely. Uh, definitely. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's, ours is more realistic. I think uh, the government uh, or the uh, policymakers have had one eye on the exchequer as well because the amount that uh, the taxman takes in through uh, fuel, the fuel levy is, is enormous. Well, indeed. And, you know, the, if depending on how rapidly uh, the rate of change is, you know, this could have major... Uh, major sort of detrimental effects to the, the UK government spending plans. So they must, the government must be worried that there is a potentially a big hole in, yeah. in future budgets for, uh, for, mean, from 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 fuel duty uh, in particular and road tax because it's free for electric vehicles at the moment. At the moment, yes. I mean, you, you're going to find uh, over time that the incentives put in place will dissipate. I mean, that's just natural. But they're just trying to get critical mass into the market. 
And governments are very good at uh, formulating ways of uh, raising tax revenues. But, of course, again, it comes down to the rate of change. You know, if, if it happens overnight, then we're in trouble. But if, if the time frame is set over, you know, realistically 30 years or so, then, um, you know, we, we, it should be relatively smooth, I would okay, imagine. OK, I mean, one, one point to, to note on that front is the time scale, time scale might not actually be uh, in the control of the French government, the British government, the, the US government, because because it's not those governments that are leading the charge on electric vehicles. It's China. It's China, of course, and, and that's why most of um, the manufacturers that have got joint ventures set up in in China. That's the reason they're, they're there, of course. I mean, when you look at it, it's, it's the largest car market in the world. Uh, I think that it may have become that in 2011, 2012. Um, and it's, it's you, you know, we're seeing exponential growth there. The trouble is for the uh, the Chinese is that they can't possibly do this in a, an environmentally sustainable way. Um, for instance, I, I make the point that um, I think it's one in six people in China uh, have access to a car now, where it's nearly a parity in the United States. So if China wants to uh, approach that level, then they don't have, have any other realistic option than to, uh, to go electric, because not that I've been, but for whatever, everything I've read, it's a major structural problem there now, the the, uh, the, the air quality or lack thereof. In, uh, absolutely. I know, in I know people who spend time in Beijing. I mean, when, when I worked at Ernst & Young, it was, uh, you know, it was the post thing you didn't want. It was, yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't want to go to Beijing. You, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to take a few years off your life. The, the air quality is that bad. I mean, the exact same thing happened in uh, in Northern Europe during the Industrial Revolution as well. Um, slightly different means, of course. Well, actually, it wasn't. It was a generally cold-fired uh, uh, industry. Indeed. Before we move on from this, and it is a fascinating feature, I, I urge you to read it. It's, uh... the, the only thing I would say about this as well, I, I, I urge people to read it because they're going to have to make up their own mind because it's just very difficult to um, predict outcome for individual uh, manufacturers. We, we've got down more picks and shovels through it, haven't we? Well, exactly. I mean, we, we generally go on, on a, somewhere along the line. There, there's going to be some uh, major con- consolidation within the, uh, the charging point market as well. I mean, that seems inevitable because... You need to get uniform charging points, uh, and of course, you know you you want scale benefits throwing uh, flowing into it. Today's announcement by Shell and the previous one by BP show that they're taking this very seriously as well. And you would imagine, or you would hope anyway, that these companies, the big oil companies, uh, will receive um, uh, government support in this in this area. Yeah, the, the kind of companies we 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 are looking at are those that are really kind of the, the support services side of the automotive sector because that's what actually we have in the UK. Really. Yes, yes, that's it. Um, a, a Ricardo, of course, uh, brilliant G- to that. And, yeah, AB Dynamics uh, to uh, all, all of the stuff that they, uh, well, actually uh, GKN are, are expanding their um, EV drivetrain business um, you know, rapidly at the moment. It's been a very strong part of the business. I think it accounts for 17% of um, uh, revenues at the moment, and that's and that's growing too. So um, I guess what investors have to look at is, is how, how how far that's offsetting any decline they're seeing in traditional uh, vehicle systems. Yes, that's true. Um, luckily, the companies that we mentioned there they tend to be high end as well, so um, you know they can uh, they look after their margins from that point of view because there's obviously going to be some initial um, margin erosion because of the uh, you know the capital commitment on their part. 
Um, but, but they seem to be doing pretty well, actually, looking at uh, uh, the last result season. Yeah, it, it, it is fascinating. I, I'm going to sort of round off our discussion about uh, cars and China with a story that uh, uh, that was told by the manager of uh, Bailey Gifford uh, Global Horizons, uh, who presented at a recent um, event of ours. And he was talking about China uh, and very much, you know, the story around Chinese uh, consumption and the expansion of markets like automotive. And, uh, yeah, it. It's being this this story is being presented as an example of Chinese materialism. Um, apparently, there was a game show that's akin to to blind date, right? Uh, and a young chap went on trying to trying to attract the uh, one one of the uh, I don't know how it exactly works, but uh, he 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 didn't have a car and he didn't have a house, and in China that's really bad. That's yes. really bad. That's not a catch. I see. <laughs> <laughs> and he said he apparently said, "I've got a bicycle." And, and and famously, this contestant said, I would rather cry in a BMW than smile on a bicycle. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It's on YouTube. It's on Wikipedia. Look it up. It's, it's, it's true. And it uh, just made me laugh. Um, I mean, talking of materialism, uh, I bought myself some new sofas recently. Very nice they are too. Uh, and uh, let's turn back to results section because sofas like uh, cars not selling like they used to. <laughs> Harriet, let's talk DFS. The retail horror show that is DFS. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's not been pretty, but we knew it wasn't going to be pretty um, for a long time. The first profit warning came out at the beginning of the summer in June. And, uh, and then they bought something. And then they bought something, and things looked a bit better, and the share price acted reacted accordingly. Uh, and then they had a second profit warning, which didn't do them any favours. And uh, God, that kind of suggests a third might be on the way as yeah. well. Yeah, so um, there's definitely downward momentum in those shares. And surprisingly, the rating is still 13, which I think looks too much for a company that's getting so much wrong at the moment. Is it, how, how does that compare with other retailers? Well, I mean, it's difficult because DFS does kind of stand sort of alone. And unfortunately, if you want to sort of lump them in with the other RMI kind of people like Tops and Carpet, right? I mean, none of those companies are doing well. Well, Tops had a, we, we talked about it last week. Uh, in your absence, I think Megan picked that one yeah, up. Yeah, um, yeah. No, not uh, not great. But then I think, you know, for a long time, I mean, DFS hasn't been actually listed that long compared to the other two. And uh, and there's an argument to say, particularly at Carpet Right, that there's a lot of self-help going on there that, that could potentially work. But what's going on? Why Why all of a sudden is DFS struggling in the way that it is? What tops? You know, why? Why? what's happened in this? You, you, could, you could loosely call it the home improvement market. What's 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 happened? Well, I think it's two things. Um, the inevitable thread, I think I wrote this up in a news analysis piece a few weeks ago, the inevitable thread which kind of ties a lot of these companies together is credit. Um, Safe Style is another good example of this, the window and door specialist that's had another absolutely torrid summer, um, two profit warnings from them as well. Um, you know, they have these big credit businesses which uh, which are not doing that well and uh, is, is this because people are less uh keen on paying for stuff taking out credit style contracts on things that they're buying just not buying it instead of instead of loading loading up on debt yeah it's a really interesting point because there's an argument to say that rates are so low so why wouldn't you load up on debt i but, know i did well <laughs> <laughs> well if you're gonna give me a sofa for 
you know, that, that I pay for without paying any interest over two years. Well, yeah, I'm going to do that. Exactly. But I wonder if there's actually been a shift in the sort of more millennial mind, which is that if we're going to take on debt, we're going to save that debt for something that really matters, like mortgages, yeah. um, and not throw it away on discretionary items when the retail market is actually so set up now with the things of Ikea and what have you, where actually we can get away with spending like 85 quid on a sofa that'll do because we'll sit 85 on 85 pounds on a sofa? That's what I what spent on my first sofa. Is what... it, I mean, it's just like James Norris buying his new flat. <laughs> literally sitting on sitting on a pallet in the middle of the lounge. For... But you know, millennials are 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 in a difficult position in in that regard. We're we're trying to finance our way through the sort of upper echelons of, Cause, of things. Because you bought a flat recently, haven't you? I did, but I'm one of the very privileged few that had help from parents. If I hadn't had that, it would have been impossible. Have you splashed that on new furniture? No, a lot of it was inherited. My dad sold his flat uh, last week, so a lot of it's been inherited from from that. I mean, but I'm, you know, I'm one of the few. Mm. Um, And uh, I I can't pretend to set any kind of example, but um, but I I do think there is... But but you're still, even so, you're you're still looking to... to, to keep costs to a minimum. Absolutely, I would not take credit on a sofa. I would think, what is the point? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, so I did, but I hadn't bought a sofa for well over a decade. Didn't, so. didn't you inherit your father's booze cabinet as well? I did. <laughs> Party round mine. Sorry, was it full of booze? Well, yeah, because he, was, uh, he lives in the US now, so he couldn't take any of that with him. Oh... That's the kind of inheritance I like. <laughs> <laughs> One you can drink away. Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating story. And, I, you know, we, we're seeing just more and more signs that uh, certainly at the kind of bigger ticket end of the retail spectrum, whether it be cars or sofas or tiles, because tiles, especially from tops, are extremely expensive. People are thinking twice. Yeah, and it also comes back to what we've discussed numerous times on this podcast, which is actual product. Um, this is something that the likes of Mothercare really springs to mind. It's something they've really suffered with, which is that they're very, very conscious of a millennial shift in taste that they can't sort of put their finger on yet. And I wonder if DFS and, and Tops and Carpet Right are kind of going the same same way, which is that if millennials are going to splash out, the amount of research that my friends do around home improvement in terms of getting the best price, but ultimately the best product, trendiest product, whatever you want to call it, best looking product i'm not sure how well dfs with its sort of you know rather archaic tv ads fits into that when i bought my sofas uh i did a lot of research and i looked at scs which i think are listed as they well are. Uh, ugh, yeah excuse me uh sorry sorry scs not my <laughs> well, it's, it's value end of the chain i looked at everyone i looked at mns uh, far too expensive for what they are and I ended up buying from Sophology which is funny enough the company that DFS has subsequently bought Indeed and there's a lot of confusion over that deal now um, it was done for £25 million, which uh, which people thought was a fair price when it was first announced um, however the analysts have dug into it a bit more and Peel Hunt on the release of the results said, uh, said they're now worried about actually um, how much of a turning around job that business is actually going to be their EBITDA performance hasn't been that consistent over the last few years. Sophology. Um, Sophology. And D- they reckon that DFS might have to plough 50 million into it. That's, see, I don't, can't get my head around this. Yeah, it's, I don't know where that number's coming from yet. There, there isn't enough information out there, but that is the number that's in the note. I mean, as I said to you earlier, I mean, selling sofas is basically, you have stock. Your showroom is essentially your sofas laid out in in a showroom I, I don't see where these expenses lie yeah i mean we haven't spoken to anyone in any detail about what they intend to do with that acquisition because i'm not sure it's even complete yet but in terms of i know that dfs in the past with their other um 
deals they've they've very often set up things in store to kind of showcase them so it might be about refit costs to do that for sophology i don't know what the terms of the sophology deal really were in terms of how they go about now showcasing that product yeah and maybe it's just got to do with distribution i mean distribution is such an expensive exercise that's mm. that's no secret yeah, but you so. pay for that when you're when you're uh, you know buying or sophology you pay you i mean you, you, they don't, it's not free delivery no exactly exactly so um <laughs> it's, it's, it, the delivery cost a bloody fortune yeah it's not it's not a john lewis issue which is like oh we're giving people free delivery on transactions under 30 pounds it's uh yeah it's big ticket items with big delivery charges so yeah i'm intrigued to see how that goes but the crucial point to mention about that 50 million is that given dfs's own ebitda projections as a plc group the analysts are now seriously worried about the cash flow in that business and to what extent the dividend is is protected yeah i think it's definitely one worth keeping an eye on and you've got it on a sell which i think is appropriate um i mean harry i know you uh sex editor as you are uh we're keen to highlight the sex focus this week uh, which is written by Megan Boxall in your old stomping ground biotechnology uh, she's done a real number on this sector here yeah, uh, she- with when I say a real number lots of numbers yes exactly and I think that's very admirable because biotech is a very easy space to stand in and say oh we can't possibly value anything because no one makes any money and there aren't any earnings off which off which to base ratios and all of that stuff and that's actually only true for a portion of them what Megan's really done is try and collate the industry together as much as possible run through the data see which ones earn money see which ones don't and then come to a conclusion about what in her mind makes the better investment which is kind of grouped them hasn't she into like different different types of biotech Uh, yeah it's a really difficult industry for new investors to understand um not just from the science perspective but as i said how you go about valuing them in the last instance so uh, she's really helped you out there and there's a there's a companion piece in the personal finance section as well well spotted robbo well Mm. spotted uh yeah indeed uh that's more looking at the uh biotech investment trust yes and funny enough investment trust are what algae hall is looking at in the uh stock screen Mm. this week uh Unloved, uh, overlooked, outperforming uh, investment trusts, which is sti- which still strikes me as insane. Investment trusts are wonderful things. The, the, almost like the stocks of funds, as it were. Exactly. Is that a John Barron quote? Or that... No, I just made it up. I just made it up. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to quickly uh, get on the phones and go over to our uh, Kent correspondent, Simon Thompson. How are you, Simon? I'm, I'm very good, John. I'm looking forward to the weekend. 22 degrees is the forecast, and um, I've got some pretty good property companies I've covered this week, which makes some decent reading in the warm weather. Okay, so we're talking first property, aren't we? Uh, we are. This was in my bargain share portfolio 2011. It's done incredibly well. Um, shares more than trebled. Uh, but there's a couple of real kickers here that um, make me think you should be buying these shares ahead of the, the results on uh, next month. Um, the first is the massive devaluation of sterling. Sterling's fallen um, from... One euro um, nineteen twenty back in April to about one euro eleven today, and the analyst on this, Chris Thomas of Arden Partners, is basically embedded in his forecast so exchange rate of one euro nineteen to his forecast. Um, I reckon, given that the overseas properties this company owns, ten overseas properties, Romania and Poland, with um, a rent roll net income of sixteen million euros. Um, there's about a million quids worth of extra profit that's actually going to come from those properties alone. Yeah, that's chunky. Um, that, that is chunky for a company that's going to forecast to make £9 million worth of uh, profits, earnings per share of just under six pence. So that implies P ratio of uh, nine, dividend yields um, roughly 3%. Um, 
The other thing is that the uh, translation effect on those properties means that it's going to give a big fat um, kick to the net asset value of the company. I reckon it's pro forma, it's roughly probably now about 52, 53 pence. Okay, and we're, we're not talking, we're not talking uh, you know, sort of uh, shady, shady residential property in the middle of Warsaw. We're talking some, some, some oh, substantial God, no, no, commercial no, no, no. property here. I oh, no, no. I mean, they've, they've, one of their subsidiaries has just sold off nine little supermarkets, which acquired December 2015, made, made a profit of just under six million euros on that. Uh, first property share was profit of £400,000 sterling, which is not a bad return because it had a 24% stake in this subsidiary. And it only invested nine hundred thousand pounds in it. And I think I think um, you mentioned in the piece that that that, that profit on that, that transaction has not actually been included in the forecast either. So No, no, it hasn't. And the other thing is that they did this deal. Um they raised hundred and eighty two million pounds back in the summer with eight institutions to invest in office blocks and business parks. They've already invested fifty one million pounds of that. Um and that they're looking at acquisitions at the moment, which are pending uh, with solicitors, basically. Uh, none of that is actually included in the um, the forecast either. So I, I can just see upside and upside on this on this company, and I, I'd be buying the shares now in advance of next month's results, which yeah, is going th- to be really really good. And I think you're, you're targeting upside of around a fifth on the current share price, which. Uh... Yeah, e- easily. Oh, actually, possibly a bit more. Actually, twenty five percent or thereabouts. At nice. Maximum, so nice. Uh, um, Sticking with property, uh, Watkins Jones. I think is the other one you wanted to uh, to highlight. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got to run profits on this. It's a student accommodation com- company. It uh, builds build these purpose-built um, uh, um, um, buildings for the private rental sector. Um, it forwards sells them, and basically. The bottom line here is it's done a lot of forward sales recently and all of its um, profits for the financial year ending September 2018 are in the bank. All, all 10 completions have been forward sold. So, so who, who, who buys these properties from Watkins Jones? Big, 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 big institutions. So the, the likes of uh, life insurance companies, LNG, uh, Legal in General, um, they, they're, they're big into this. Um, and they're basically buying a stable income stream um, and... Um, they get the upside from these developments over time um, because, you know, um, rents go up in line with inflation. Um, so that, that, that's the type of rationale behind it. But, I mean, the thing is that they've also forward sold 2,500 of the 3,500 beds they're, they're developing for the 2019 financial year, which basically de-risked those forecasts as well. And as these developments come online, the company's net fund is going to go through the roof. I mean, uh, Jeffrey's investment bank forecasts that the end of September... 2017, the company will have 60 million pounds net funds, rising to 75 million 12 months hence, rising to 90 million pounds or thereabouts by September 2019. Well, that's worth 35 pence a share against a share price that's two pounds 20 or thereabouts. Um, that basically underpins hefty dividend rises. I mean, cumulatively, over the next three financial years, we're looking at 20 pence worth of dividends, or you know. Nine ten percent of the current share price. Indeed, I mean, um, just just one question. I mean, yeah, student property. It's been a great trade. We know we know that we've seen companies like Watkins Jones do well. We've seen companies like Unite do very well. Are we not worried about the impact of Brexit on the higher education sector in the UK? I, I'm not. The simple fact that the sterling euro exchange rate is now down to one euro eleven. Um, two years ago, it's one euro forty odds. So, a European citizen wanted to actually go to a British university, pay nine thousand pounds sterling's worth of fees is actually translating that now at one euro eleven rather than one euro forty odds a couple of years ago. 
it's a lot cheaper than it was, John. Always about the maths with you, Simon. That's what I like. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's great. Thank you very much, Simon, and we will catch up again next week. Great. Have a good have a good weekend. You too. Speak soon. Cheers. All right. Anyway, I think we've uh, we've kind of hit, hit the end of our window. It's anyway, nice. thank you, Mark, and thank you, Harriet. Um, yeah, lots lots to think about there. Lots more in the magazine this week. We've got John Rosie, our, our private investor diary. Uh, Diarist has, has updated his portfolio. Chris Dillo is looking at his No Thought portfolios. Momentum it continues, continues to outperform in an astonishing manner. What a strategy that has proved over the years. Um, lots of the personal finance and fun section, uh, as Robbo has alluded to, uh, that they'll be talking about on their podcast. And all the usual comments, including Alex's wonderful commodity piece. Some results, it's quite down a bit this week, thank goodness. Tips, news, etc. It's a great magazine. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Emerge from the smog. Pick it up in all good uh, news agents. And uh, yeah, see you soon.